Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations with artists, I invite you to come visit David's Werner Gallery exhibitions in person. We're located in New York, Los Angeles, London, Paris, and Hong Kong. New exhibitions open each month. Plan your visit at davidswerner.com. From David's Werner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. You know, I didn't like my sister to tell me what to do, uh, how to be and how to behave. I just wanted to do it. And the only place that you can show some independence is in art. Because no, no one is going to tell you what to do. I'm Helen Molesworth, your host for this season. Every episode features a conversation with artists, curators, writers, designers, philosophers, filmmakers, and musicians about what it means to make things today. Hey everyone, it's Helen. I'm so excited to introduce a special episode on one of my all-time favorites, Ruth Asawa. In this episode, I invited two other artists I deeply admire, E.J. Hill and Sarah Z to listen to some archival interviews so that we could do a deep dive on the philosophy of art and life as offered by the late, great Ruth Asawa. For me, her life and work are exemplary of what it means to be an artist, to be someone who is constantly working on a project of their own making, on their own time, and in their own way. I hope you enjoy it. Ruth Asawa has one of the most dynamic and quintessentially American biographies of any artist I know. Born in 1926 in Southern California, her parents were farmers who had immigrated from Japan. They raised Ruth and her six siblings on a truck farm. It was a hard life in which all of the members of the family worked on the farm six days a week. Part of the family lore is that Ruth could be a little ornery, and hence one of her many chores was the one-person job of tying up the string beans. My mother knew that I was was always making trouble. She would put me into uh, picking beans because she could put me right there and I could work by myself. I didn't need anybody around me. So I was was the official person to to string the bean, to string the, the bean poles, mm-hmm. and I would, then I would be the one to pick the the the, be, the the beans because I could be isolated in this <coughs> field with nobody around me. That bit of audio is from an oral history Asawa gave in 2000, as part of a project by the California State Libraries to document California history. The interviewer is Joanne Tycho Iritani. In addition to the hard work of farming, Asawa also attended Japanese school, where she learned calligraphy. She recalled this with delight, saying, quote, It was like a dance. Lift your feet up and lift your hands. You have to work so this round curve turns into the next stroke. By the time Asawa was an adolescent, the United States had entered World War II and the Asawa family, along with almost every other Japanese-American living on the West Coast, was interned. Asawa spent her high school years confined in two different camps. 
at the Santa Anita racetrack, where Asawa lived for the first five months of her internment, no provisions had been made for schooling the children. The Japanese-American illustrators who work for Walt Disney took matters into their own hands and taught art classes for the children in the camp. College students became our teachers, uh-huh. and, and people from Disney Studios taught. I mean, they were, they were intern, interns, they were... so they became teachers for us. Oh. So we had wonderful teachers. You... Tom Okamoto taught, taught drawing uh-huh. and figure drawing, and, and I think Ben, Ta- was... ben Tanaka was some, one. And that was part. Uh, that was part of the uh, classes, regular high school classes. Yeah, they were informal, but they had the classes in the bleachers. In 1943, Asawa received a grant from the Quakers that allowed her to enroll in a teachers' college, but left when she learned how difficult and unlikely it would be for her to secure a teaching position because of her Japanese ancestry. Luckily. A friend of hers encouraged her to go to the relatively new and experimental school, Black Mountain College. There, her life would change completely. As a student at Black Mountain, she was a favorite of Joseph Albers and Buckminster Fuller, both of whom, along with Annie Albers, she remained friends with for the rest of her life. So much so that Buckminster Fuller designed her wedding ring, and Annie Albers would supply the cloth for her wedding dress. While at Black Mountain, Asawa attended Merce Cunningham's dance classes, where she sometimes sat at the edge of the room and drew. While watching her fellow students dance, she is said to have arrived at her biomorphic lobed forms. These nested bulbous shapes would later manifest themselves in her now famous sculptures, made with a looping wire technique she learned from Mexican basket weavers. Life at the cash-strapped college meant that all of the students had jobs to help the place run. Asawa gave haircuts and churned buttermilk. It was there that she met the great love of her life, fellow student Albert Lanier. He would ultimately go on to become an architect. After Black Mountain, the young couple settled in San Francisco. And in the first ten years of their union, they welcomed six children. During this period, she enjoyed some early modest success, a few exhibitions and reviews of note. But as the 1950s wore on, her work was subtly and not so subtly dismissed as being too feminine, too Asian, too craft-based. Asawa remained undeterred. She continued her daily practice of drawing and making sculpture and tending to her prodigious vegetable and flower gardens. Perhaps this was because being an artist meant something different to her than achieving success or notoriety in the art world. For Asawa, being an artist seemed to have more to do with how she wanted to live her life. It wasn't so much, I don't think it was a desire to be an artist so much as not wanting people to tell me what to do. I didn't, I didn't like to follow directions. I didn't like to, you know, I didn't, didn't like my sister to tell me what to do, uh, how to be and how to behave. I just wanted to do it. And the only place that you can show some independence is in art. Because no, no one is going to tell you what to do. In 1968, dismayed by the education her children were receiving, she founded the first public art program in the San Francisco public school system. 
She was a beloved member of the San Francisco art community, friends with local politicians, and ultimately she made four major public fountains for the city, all of which are still on view. Even though the New York art world ignored her to the point of obscurity, she was always considered something of a national treasure in Northern California. She was aware of this and made it part of her worldview, as you'll hear in this next clip. Just a note, Asawa's speech has been slowed by age here, and she's a little hard to hear. It's fair for me to be to invest in San Francisco. Can you explain that? Because I think there's a lot to that statement. Could you explain what you mean by that? I mean that, that if you if you have a place and you invest in it and you make it good, then it's better than being a little bit here and a little bit there yeah. in Chicago, New York, and Houston. It's better to be in San Francisco and make and work on 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 being effective in mm-hmm. one place. I guess it's like being a being a, you know how you say a big pond and small fish right. or a big fish in, in small pond. <laughs> that bit of audio is courtesy of the Smithsonian Archives of American Art. In 2002, the cultural biographer Paul Karlstrom showed up in San Francisco to interview Asawa as part of the Smithsonian's Rich Oral History Project. Asawa's husband, Albert Lanier, is also present in the interview, and he chimes in occasionally, as does Mark Johnson, who is part of the team from the Smithsonian. Asawa was 76 years old at the time. I've selected clips from this archival audio recording and shared them with artists E.J. Hill and Sarah Z. I asked EJ because his sculpture uses lo-fi materials, and during the height of the pandemic, he started to paint flowers, a subject matter close to Asawa's heart. And I asked Sarah because she studied at Yale, which meant she and Asawa share some of the Joseph Albers' DNA in terms of art pedagogy. And because as a sculptor, Sarah's work, like Asawa's, often uses suspension and transparency. Here's a clip from the beginning of Karlstrom's interview with Ruth Asawa. We were, we were encouraged to try out new things at that time. I think we felt that everything was possible. Everything was possible. That's Albert Lanier, Asawa's husband. And maybe it was our, our, our youth that, that, you know, gave us that, that feeling at that time. And then, but we thought it was, we were given permission to, to try out new things in terms of, uh, of the way materials, the, the materials, the things that, that, uh, uh, the administration was trying to do, they were experimenting with that. And we were also experimenting, uh, time and and we were I think we were so poor that we were taking materials that that were around us and using leaves and rocks and and things that were national as our our uh, you know rather than having good paper and good, good 
materials that we bought, we had to scrounge around with things that were around us, and I think that was very good for us. Here's me talking to E.J. Hill about this clip. You have also an incredibly spare aesthetic when it comes to your materials. And I wanted to know how, like, what is that kind of language about impoverished materials? How you hear it, how you relate to it, what it means to you? That's so funny because I'm like, we're in the middle of, uh, you know, building this installation currently that's all, you know, uh, reused two by fours and siding and like wood that has already had a life and uh, many lives even, but it's like, you know, this material that's slapped together with a few drywall screws and it, and it feels really, you know, good and, and honest, authentic to me and my person. But I still, even so many years later, have this anxiety about like this, like, you know, my, my, I guess like, it, not so much an inability, but maybe like a, a a lack of interest around like capital H, capital A high art materials, you know, um, something about this just feels really working with this wood feels really, um, uh, I don't know, it's, it's physical and tactile and I get splinters and it's dirty and it's just very, um, I don't know, it feels bodily in a way that like, uh, I don't know, I imagine finish fetish stuff to not feel um, it's not very slick but that's what i enjoy about it and it's not very it's not really pretty either um so when i think about you know like imp- impoverished materials i hear just like what what's in arms reach like what's around you that you can do some stuff with you know and you said earlier that it felt very authentic to your person would you mind talking like a little bit more about like what does that mean for a material to feel authentic to your person? Um, I just think about, uh, you know, growing up, a first-generation American immigrant family coming from Belize to L.A. in the early 1970s and just, like, not having a whole lot, you know? But, like, we made do with what we had. And I think the crazy part about being born and raised in Los Angeles is the image of LA gets exported globally, but it's like a very particular type of Los Angeles that was never ever near where I was. And so even I had this kind of dual experience of Los Angeles, I I got to see the same LA that the rest of the world got to see via magazines and film and TV and music and popular culture. But the LA that I lived in was like an alternate universe. It like was nowhere near um, what was being portrayed. And so, you know, there's a kind of um, like bare bones, uh, uh, when I think about materials, like a more bare bones aesthetic, you know, like we're just near 76 and Western with grandma and like the shops that have been there on that stretch of street, like on that stretch of the block for like years. And it's just, it's like any town USA, any neighborhood USA. Um, and it doesn't really feel like what LA looks like in the public eye. And so when I think of, um, an authenticity to my person, it's like from that place, it's, it's you, you make do with what you have and nothing more, nothing less. I posed the same question to Sarah Z and I'm curious 
how you think about your own use of materials? And is there something in a Sawa's use of kind of whatever was at hand? The word I would say is readily available, that you, that you're, that you are, you know, it's within arm's reach. Um, and she's, that's one of her tactics, I think, for the resilience in all of these different places. She finds, she finds her truck farm. She creates a garden and she calls it and she puts it, you know, and she puts it in her cart and brings it out to the world. And she, no matter where that is, she figures out how to make do. And I think that that idea and also the idea of her artwork almost being a tool that, you know, that a painting or a sculpture or a drawing can be a tool through which to see the world. So, so to me, that's when I, I wouldn't, it's not about really being impoverished than it is being, that's why I use the word tool as well. Like what are tools for seeing? What are tools for living? I love Sarah's idea that an artwork is a tool for seeing, a tool for living. It means that art has a function in the world. It has a use value. It means art is not inert, but rather active. Another way of thinking about art as a tool is to be reminded that the Black Mountain experience didn't only offer a scrappy economy that valued resilience in using materials at hand. It was also a place that privileged experimentation with form so much so that many artists had to invent new forms as a result. Using Sarah's language, I wondered if we could call these new forms new tools. So for instance, a Sawa's fellow student, Robert Rauschenberg, invented the combines, and a Sawa invented her hanging lobed sculptures. Both of these new forms or tools confused people. The Smithsonian interviewer, Mark Johnson, brought this up in the interview. At the Oakland Museum now, when your exhibition is up, it talks about one of the first shows you had here in San Francisco at the Museum of Modern Art. And it says there was some discussion as to whether your work was sculpture because it didn't stand up by itself. Right. Uh-huh. And I was wondering if you felt that could be related in any way to the fact that you had been at a place that had these textile wall hangings mm-hmm. so that there was a tradition of things that didn't hang up by themselves. What do you think about that? Uh, well, you know, you know, it, it. I think that Black Man gave you the right to do anything you want to do, and then you put a label on it afterwards. I think that that's a nice thing about what Black Man did for students, it was like they they gave you permission to, to do anything you wanted to do. And then if it didn't fit, they'd make a category for you. But I think it Black Mountain helped make something with weaving and with making and it it gave people the the, the freedom to to make make something of of each each category I think and we don't have any you know so we don't have those divisions anymore. In her typically modest way, Asawa downplays her own inventiveness here, but I don't have to. 
Her lobed sculptures married the logic of weaving, in which you take a line and transform it into a flat plane, to the logic of printmaking, which is structurally dependent on positive and negative space. The novelty of Asawa's most iconic form was very provocatively described by Sarah. One of the things that now I'm really interested in her work is how her work, at least with the sculptures, they really developed from the inside out. That she was taking, you know, that's something I think people tend to not discuss as much, is that she, she made the interior of the work before she made the exterior, and the interior created the exterior. And that's sort of, that process itself uh, creates a, a work that is um, figurative, that is uh, organic, that has a sense of, um, you know, growth that, that uh, creates itself. And that's a really different way to start a sculpture. So I think when you're talking about sculpture, whether you're starting with, you know, an object that you whittle down, whether you're, you know, casting with your building, she's structurally actually building an, an amorphous form that doesn't actually hold itself up. You know, the, many of the pictures of her, she's actually holding them in her lap or they're part of her body. Um, and I think it's always interesting to talk about how a work is made in its most basic form, right? And so if we're taking her talking about her sculptures, the fact that she starts from the inside, that is a very specific way to start making something. And that idea that there's transparency, that you're, you're, you're that you have a kind of way of transporting yourself into the interior so that the surface itself is not what the viewer actually experiences, right? but they're experiencing interior. You really experience the interior. Uh, and also the other thing about seeing these in images is there's, you know, they are, they are very kinetic, right? So even the transparency is constantly being disorienting, right? There's a disorientation about where you are in relation to the piece, where her hand is in relation to the piece, where did she start, where did she begin in the piece? And that, this idea of creating an artwork where you feel like you recognize your interior life on the exterior and that moment of sort of this moving from interior to exterior in in space that to me that has to do with transparency this quality of beginning from the inside out was endemic to asawa's thinking in recounting the sculptural work of one of her professors at black mountain peter grip asawa notes that she liked his work as long as it was transparent as long as it was without the plaster. And the minute he put the plaster on, I didn't like it anymore because it, it became solid. I liked him when he was, the framework that he, he was using. Do you, and, do you consider him then uh, some kind of influence in your thinking as you, as you evolved? Your well, Albert, I, it was both him and Albert together because Elvis was always talking about transparencies. That is a modern thing. And he was always talking about, about making things modern with a point at the bottom instead of having pyramid. He would say, we would make the, the point at the bottom. And it was, I think it was, Always taught, taught us how to think modernly and not, not 
not in the old way, in old traditional way. I'm interested in how Asawa aligns transparency with Albers's inversion of the pyramid. What is it that's modern about these form inversions for Asawa? When Albers turns the pyramid on its head, he makes it active, an image of precarious balancing. And when something is transparent, you can see the thing and see through the thing at the same time. In essence, you've doubled your perception. This doubleness and or balancing was something that really caught EJ's attention. Yeah, you know, I really loved reading about like uh, this idea of transparency, you know, that there's like a almost a there's a threshold, but the threshold is permeable, you know, like it's not this fixed mile thick wall. It's something that like delineates here and there, but something that can still be traversed. And I and I really I, I think that type of flexibility is really generous, you know? Um, and so I, in thinking about like inside, outside, or up, down, left, right, whatever the sort of binary is, that middle point for a very long time where things are no longer this, but they're not quite that yet, that's been like really exciting to me. And if I look back to like a lot of my earlier performances, even in undergrad or some of my early writings, I'm like always trying to figure out, I called it the fulcrum in a lot of early writings, but that point like right above the fulcrum where like you're not tipped in either way, you're just like in this weird amalgam of both, but you're nowhere at all. And like that point that space is so exciting to me i feel like that's where everything exists you know right above the fulcrum um i love that i use the word liminal to you know to try and get at this feeling of in between in betweenness and i think ruth asawa is like one of the 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 you know the masters of it like um why? What is it about that space, that fulcrum, that liminality? Why do you want to be there? And why do you want to put other people there in terms of making work? I mean, I think maybe because, you know, ev- everything in our natural world exists within that space, I think. Like everything's in this like constant flux from between here and there and if we can like expand that space into not just like the tiny point above the fulcrum or the liminality but like liminat like i think about that joseph boy's like seven thousand oaks work like the tree with the stone like both are changing over a very 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 long time but they're you know at the time you're encountering it you're only seeing like a a, a tiny slice and so i feel like ev- everything operates within that kind of um liminal space but for some reason human beings have constructed a system where we are conditioned to believe that we can only exist in like single moments at a time like my body can only be this and it's described as this way and um it is this like perceived monolithic experience where if my experience as an embodied being um has a certain uh, a certain set of like conditions then like it must be true for everybody and so i feel very locked in to these uh seemingly fixed uh spaces of being and i don't want 
to feel like that. I want to feel as expansive and dynamic as the rest of the natural world. In the context of this conversation, EJ's rooting of his desire for expansiveness and dynamism in the natural world does not seem like an accident to me. There's something in the DNA of Asawa's work that keeps bringing us back to the order, the work, and the wonder of nature. It seems as if the logic of the farm was never far from her thinking. Listen here as she makes an oblique analogy between farming and art making. Learn from my parents if I plant a seed, I'll get a tomato out of a tomato seed. I'll get a tomato plant, then I'll get tomatoes from from that. I like that. But there is, it seems to me, the sense of a natural process, even in this creative act of yours. Well, I like I like if you take material, you like to know how far you can take it uh, from what is traditionally known to do, like a piece of paper. You like to take it another step. And, and if it, it teaches you geometry and not just written for, for writing, mm-hmm. writing something, and you find that you can go from two dimension to three dimension to three dimension. That that interests me, mm-hmm. and it can be any material. It doesn't have to be wire. It just has to be able to do that. I think that that's an important thing. I couldn't help but hear in Asawa's description of gardening something else she said about art, or more specifically, about being an artist. When she talks about her student days at Black Mountain, she links her sense of the poverty of the school with the students turning to the natural world for materials. Black Mountain was a very poor school. We we didn't have the latest in plastic or glass or or anything. We had to go even further back and, and and look at their leaves. We had to pick leaves and we had to say that because we didn't have enough of the of the new things at that time. We had to go back to to even even uh I remember Ray Johnson using the the insect in the, the wings and and the, and the, the weaving of 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 worms that took the branches from 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 a tree and the corner where the branches that uh, divided and it was with a the web of of uh, of uh, Insect, and we use that, and it looked—it looked, it like, like a silkworm, mm-hmm. and 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 it looked more modern than the modern things of that time, and we were forced to go back to to natural things, and na- yeah. nature forms, and that—that uh, that of course is 
but I, I guess one could say it's an aesthetic or philosophical uh, view of art and how it, uh, in our practice and applications from the standpoint of the formalist interests. But beyond that, and you know, you mentioned the sort of minimalist or reductive, making do, not making do with less, that there's virtue yeah. in, in less and reduction. It, it's, a, it's distant between effort and effect. And that, that, that you, the closer it gets, that would spoil our job. In case you missed it due to Carlstrom jumping in over Asawa there, it's the last sentence that really gets me. Asawa says, quote, It's the distance between effort and effect. That was what our job was. Here's Sarah again. Okay, so that's interesting also because she's like, that's what our job was. Like she's, she's like, this is, you know, a du- there's a duty here. So my, I would say that, that if there's a job, you know, I'm going to propose this. If there's a job, it's to create an experience of viewing for others. That's one of discovery and one of recognition. That And that's different. That's different than just making something, that there is in the making a kind of recognition and a discovery in the artist that then gets translated to the viewer. And I believe strongly in that. I think that's why I think the, the sculptures are so interesting because they, you know, structurally, she does not know what the end form is. And that is true of any good artwork. Most artworks are, you know, have a, some kind of starting point for them, right? We know we know generally, you know, it can go as high as the ceiling, right? Or the canvas is about this big. Those are very traditional ways to say it. But there's some planning involved. There's something intrinsic about the way she makes these sculptures where you know that they form themselves. And there's a sense of discovery in them and recognition of them becoming something that is so live and I think that's true of any artwork, but in these, it's it 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 they they make themselves, they form almost like, you know, the way she talks about gardens and flowers, right? You plant a seed and it becomes. So you see this kind of sense of becoming, right? So effort and effect for me is about that. It's about it's about putting in enough effort to let the material then become itself something. I brought the same quote to EJ the one about the difference or the distance between effort and effect, to see what he would say. Wow. I I hear in this, you know, again, sort of what we were talking about earlier is that like, you know, that liminal space, that um, the distance between effort and effect being a space that is immeasurable, but we can sort of feel it's like, contraction you know like whether um they're kind of more collapsed onto each other or whether they're like oceans apart we can't quite have an exact um measurement of them but we i I think we can like feel and see when they're closer and i think that that um that effort and uh, effect or you can you can see the fruits of your labor um in the effect uh, as directly tied to the effort that you expend. So for instance, um, you know, let's take the Black Mountain example. Um, I have, my guess is that while uh, artists were there, they were kind of just doing what they do. 
Um, but now we have uh, so much evidence of the effect of that very, very special time that people came together for those years in North Carolina. And that distance between effort and effect is much, much longer and can only be understood over a protracted uh, period. Um, but we can see the actual real effects and echoes and ripples of a bunch of people coming together um, at Black Mountain because we have, we have the evidence of their effort. One of the things I hear in what EJ is saying is that while the job of the artist might be to live in the space between effort and effect, it's not necessarily the artist's job to either measure or monitor that distance. And I think that's partly what Sarah is commenting on when she talks about the sense of discovery in Asawa's work. Part of the aliveness of the work is that Asawa is very much in the space in between effort and effect, knowing that if she puts in the effort, the effect will naturally emerge. This made one part of Asawa's interview all the more quizzical to me. Even though she was friends with San Francisco's politicians, even though she'd been tapped to make numerous public sculptures for the city, and perhaps most importantly, even though she started the arts program in the public school system, Asawa casts an uncharacteristically caustic eye when it comes to activism. Listen. Obviously, one is interested, others will be interested in knowing to what extent, uh, and I'll ask it again, there's an overlap in, in, in broader, I guess, creative philosophy that which you bring to your work as an architect, you know, to creating homes, creating structures, uh, and how to do it and what that means and what personally you can bring into it, a way of looking at the world or forming the world. Well, I think, I think here we should talk again about Bucky and, and he, this is for young people in a way, because, because they have the 60s and uh, have been spent on, on the free speech movement and uh, the fighting in the streets and all that. And when that happened to Buckminster Fuller, a, a young Japanese was protesting the, the air, airplane or airport in Japan. And, and he told this young man not to waste his time protesting. The protest should be himself working on something mm -hmm. that was useful. And I think that kind of philosophy is, is uh, uh, rather than protesting for nothing, for going out in the street in the street and with banners mm -hmm. that that one a young person with an idea should be working on that idea instead of fighting what he doesn't believe in and i think that that kind of what would you say that kind activism. of activism activism is is wasteful 
and it's better to be working on an idea and building on that than to breaking down and protesting something that exists. I confess, I found this a little surprising when I first heard it. And it turns out, so did Sarah. I feel like, uh, you know, it's funny because Asawa said, I don't believe in activism. And then you're like, wait a second, you did all this. Like, <laughs> how can you say that? You're like, um, you know, actually, you did a thousand things, raise money for charities. You're like, there's a school named after you. It was funny. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Super really involved. Yeah, yeah. She was a complete activist. But um, so, I mean, to me, I don't, and not to sound, um, I don't know if it sounds self-righteous, but I feel, I, I think uh, teaching is, you know, one of the most underappreciated uh, <laughs> professions in this country. And I think one of the most important. And before I went to graduate school, I had some incredible, um, really outstanding middle school and, and high school female teach, artist teachers. And when I went to undergrad, I had almost no female teachers. I had what there was one sort of position that was like a revolving door um, for a teacher, and she was my mentor. But actually, most of them were the second generation Albers people who I learned a lot from. Um, but I really wanted to. When I teach, I I treat my students like te- they're artists. I talk to them like artists, and it for me, I was really um, I wanted. I think it's important for artists to see other working, practicing international female artists and say, oh, there's these people are alive. They exist. I could do this. I was struck by how EJ also linked teaching and activism in a way that rhymed with Sarah's sense of things. It turns out that both artists had a pretty expansive version of what activism might mean. I think... That resonates with me because it feels, it it just feels really, again, not to harp on this word, but like authentic. Like it just feels so true to, to like wake up and, and live in such a way. I've been thinking of this, this sort of like mantra that has been kicking around my head for um, a few months now, but um, embody the example, you know, it's just kind of like we can go on and on and, you know, lament how others aren't, you know, doing this or doing that or pulling their weight. But um, I think an important part, uh, and this comes from my experience in the classroom and uh, you know, as an educator and as a student, but like one of the, I think, um, most effective ways of teaching is if you are embodying the example. And so if there's like um, a, a lesson that you want to um, deliver or, um, you know, a demonstration that you'd like someone to see, I think you just kind of have to live it. And so this idea of just like making your work and doing you and doing your thing is kind of just like putting putting the practice in front of people in a way that is very uh, real and lived. And it takes it into the realm of the actual and not um, this idea that you can just like spin around and talk about. You know, I don't, I don't really make any uh, separation between um, art and activism, like it all kind of feels the same to me. 
Um, you know, because the art is the idea, is the action, is the gesture, is the result of the gesture, is the proof and the documentation. Like it's all part of the same continuum. Um, and so I think I kind of, you know, I can, I can align pretty well with this, uh, um, yeah, Asawa's idea of, of, of uh, just, just live it, just do you, just practice, just make what you make and do what you do. And the rest kind of falls into place as it, as it will. One thing that became clear to me in these conversations was how much of what I find inspiring about Asawa is her prodigious work ethic. This quality she has of getting down to it, of doing things, of getting things done, of doing the work of being an artist, is something Asawa traces back to lessons learned in her family that were further honed at Black Mountain. Her work offers us the daily exploration of form as a kind of ethics, that being and living in the world in a manner that is productive and generous, and that being with others in community, even as you pursue your own aims, this is part of what being an artist is all about. If, as her husband Albert Lanyard said at the very beginning, that, quote, anything is possible, then Ruth took that question in the most prosaic of directions. For instance, in this final clip, you'll hear Asawa talk in a manner I've come to understand as her philosophy on life. Basically, she says, when you realize you need a chair, then the next question you have to ask yourself is what kind of chair do you need? It seems only fitting to let Ruth have the last word. Thanks so much for listening. There was no, no title to what we were trying to do. If you, if you want a chair, they say, go up there. There's a witch up there. You can make your own chair, or you could make make a desk or table up there. They, they, they point to the wood shop and they say, make your own. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. If you like this episode, please follow, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It really does help the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you join us here next time.